So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, really good to be with you guys. If you don't know me, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors of Village. I'm normally over at uh, our East Congregation, but uh, it's always a delight to be with you guys. So. Um, if you haven't, you probably have because we just read it, but open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, however you have kind of grown up saying that. Um, we are um, like a third of the way through uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Church of Corinth. Um, as uh, Chad said, next week we're taking a break uh, because it's the 1st of December, can you believe it? Um, Advent begins next, next, uh, next week. Um, if you... Maybe if you don't come from a tradition that, that um, observes and kind of celebrates Advent, um, come uh, expectantly uh, uh, as Advent is kind of all about. So um, we're going to study the book of Ruth. Um, it's this like short love story that um, just helps us understand the greater love story of, of the Bible. Um, it's about redeeming grace. Um, and it's like four chapters long. You could literally read it in like 10 minutes. Um, we have this value, uh, a village of the word dwelling among us. So can I encourage you? Um, really, our hope is that, the only time, that Sundays aren't the only time that you're opening your Bible and, and, and being in it and reading it. Um, encourage you to be reading over the book of Ruth this week together, individually. Maybe your MC can read through it this week. Um, it'd be amazing if we went into that series um, just everybody just saturated in it and familiar with it and ready to uh, just receive uh, truth from it. Um, but we're going to continue on in uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, we've, we've broken this letter up into different sections and given it kind of different titles to help us kind of grasp what's happening and, and understand. Um, understand that really as a whole though, that through the whole letter, Paul has this um, this concern for holiness through the whole letter. 
He even he opens up the the book in 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 that. So back in chapter one, verse two, um, he he says, well, he says, this is who I am. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. And he says who he's writing to. And he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means to be set apart. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So you're called to be holy, to be sacred. Uh, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you, uh, c- if you understand yourself as that this morning. If you're part of the church, that you are called to be set apart. You're called to be a saint. So our tradition, we, have, we, we don't just pick out a few special Christians through, through history and say they're special enough to be called a saint. No, if you're, the Bible, the, uh, the, the biblical definition of a saint is if you are a believer, you are a saint. You are sacred. You are holy. Um, we're going to see that through the letter, um, Paul's going to show us how that, that holiness of God's special people is, is played out in the, the, the messiness of the, of the culture that we live in. Um, and it gets really messy, as you uh, saw last week, and we kind of continue on uh, this week. We, the first four chapters, we entitled The Imperfect Church. Um, so even though we've, we've called to be holy, we've called to be set apart and, and sacred, you see that the church of Corinth is still quite imperfect. Um, so Paul addresses all their imperfections. There, there's these divisions among them that, that he's addressing. They're, they seem to be kind of plagued by arrogance. Um, they're more concerned with lining up with the culture of Corinth, which says that you need to chase after status, that you need to chase after wealth and, and wisdom and glory and honor. They're more concerned with that than lining up with the culture of, of Jesus. So the kingdom of God's opposite uh, from, the, from the, the culture of Corinth and, and our culture. Because the kingdom of God is all about being last rather than being first. It's not about getting to the top. It's about being at the bottom, about serving. It's about being brought low. It's about understanding our, our position as recipients of God's grace, which keeps us from being arrogant and puffed up like Paul says. It's about being, uh, even, even in our lowliness, that, that God's power, this kingdom of power, his power is displayed even in our suffering. The kingdom of God's opposite is upside down from the kingdom of the world. Um, through those first four chapters, Paul calls them to this holiness, that they'd remember the gospel and stop being divided, be united in who you are. The next three chapters, and we've entitled Life Together, so that's where we are today, uh, and you can see that this, for the church of Corinth and for our church here, um, life together can be quite messy. Um, so Paul's call says, you know, the church is called to be saints. You're called to be uh, set apart and kind of sacred and holy. But at the same time, we're made up of sinners. Um, so we're imperfect here right now in our short lives on earth. And we're, we're working out this holiness in a way. And as we work out this life together, things get messy so we, we tend to get in, in, in each other's way, and we can offend each other in, in small ways, in little kind of short ways, things that we say to each other, really big ways as well. And, and really, this, this first section of chapter 6 addresses that. And Paul's, um, he's, he's considering how believers are to relate to one another when one of you has been wronged by the other. How, how we, as a gospel-shaped community of people, um, how we handle and deal with our disputes and our grievances uh, between fellow believers. Even find it interesting the way he begins uh, verse one. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another. So not if you do someday. He says, when you do, because you will. 
because you're imperfect as he established, because we have pride in our hearts that we needed to deal with. Um, he, um, you're going to have grievances and disputes with your brothers and sisters. Um, just like your, your normal family, if you have brothers and sisters, I wonder if anybody has a perfect relationship with your family, never fought, always just perfectly get along. Probably not. Um, we, we have grievances and, and disputes, and Paul gives us instructions on how we, as a gospel community, deal with that. Um, just like in the previous chapter, really he gives us an example of, of how not to deal with it. Don't do this. Um, so we can learn from our ancient brothers and sisters in Corinth and um, learn from their mistakes. I'm going to pray for us one more time before we really uh, dig into the passage. Um, Father, your, your love for us uh, just doesn't really make sense to our, our minds when we think about it, and because you are perfect, and you are holy, you are the creator of all things, yet you choose to, to love us, you, you choose us to be your people, and we, in our nature, constantly run from you, we constantly uh, uh, butt up against you, uh, but you... Jesus, you come and you, you condescend to our level. You enter into our messiness. You live the life that we could never live and you die the death that we should die just to bring us close, just so we can be called sons and daughters. Remind us of that today, Lord. Uh, Spirit, we'd ask that you'd help us today. Pray that you'd um, open uh, people's minds and their hearts in a way that only you can. I pray you'd speak through me in a way that only you can, not for, not for my glory, but for yours, Jesus, because today we gather in your name. This is all about you. This is all about celebrating what you've done. And Lord, help us to submit again to you. We so want to shape you around what's acceptable in our eyes, but you will not be shaped. We are the ones who are shaped to you. So um, help us to um, submit to your authority again today. Um, this is in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. Um, as always, let's understand the, the context and the background of what Paul is actually addressing here. Um, really, a, a big part of our job as Bible teachers is through the week when we're, we're studying this passage, we're praying over it, the, the, main, the, the, the huge part of our job is to figure out what's, what's the main point, what, what's the main thrust uh, that, that Paul is, is, is getting across here in this section. Um, because uh, just like last week's section, there's going to be things that, as Claire read this, there's things that pop out to you. Uh, there's things that might shock you. And, and we so want to make certain things that might not be the main point, the main point. Let's talk about that. For you, it's probably that list of transgressions in verses 9 and 10. Basically, anytime we talk about sexual immorality, we start to squirm or like, Talk to me about that. And um, be patient, uh, because we will. The, the next section um, is, addresses uh, our sexual ethics straight on. And uh, Andrew gets the pleasure of doing that with you. Uh, he's going to do that after Advent, after our break. Um, but, but listen, today, the main thrust of this passage is to address the community on how they're to handle their grievances, how, they're, how to deal with their family disputes uh, when one member of the community has a grievance against another member. Um, so in, in this specific context, uh, one brother in the church uh, has a grievance against another brother in the church. 
And, and rather than handling their, their problem internally within the family, they've allowed the issue to escalate, and they've, the, this brother has taken the other brother outside the church into the public court to deal with this, this nasty dispute, um, this lawsuit. And, and I want you to listen, because Paul, what he says about this is very, very important for us. And because I'm guessing most of you, you're sitting there thinking, I've never taken uh, another Christian to court. I've never even stepped foot inside a court. Um, th- th- that doesn't matter. The, the, what's Paul's teaching on the issue, he's going to inform us something deeper. There, there's, he's going to inform us how we are to consider ourselves, our, our community, and our, our interpersonal relationships. Um, despite the kind of legal characteristic of, of this given situation. Don't get too hung up on Paul's specific example, although it's really important, and make sure we're understanding the, the underlying principle uh, of what he's saying, the, the heart of the issue. And Paul's instructing the church to, to handle their family issues internally within the church. And before we understand what, what Paul is saying, let's quickly understand what Paul is not saying. Um, I think it's very important, because I, I don't think that that Paul's completely disregarding local governmental authorities. And he's, he's, he's not saying that our local worldly authorities never have jurisdiction over Christians. And read uh, some, uh, uh, Romans 13 sometime. Paul actually argues that local authorities are actually instituted by God for, the, for our good and for our flourishing. And Paul's, Paul's, he, he says that we are to submit to them. There's, there's a, a gratitude uh, by Paul for the local authorities. Um, I also don't think that Paul's saying that every single issue within the church should always be handled only in, in, in-house. Um, I, I, doubt, um, I doubt anyone's planning to like murder one of your other brothers and sisters, but if I find out that you're planning to murder, I don't know why I've chosen murder as an example, but if, if I find out you're trying to do that, I'll probably call the local authorities and get them involved, and I think uh, Paul would probably think that's a good thing. Um, there, there's, the, the church has, has messed up seriously um, throughout history by trying to handle certain uh, issues only in-house, issues that, that definitely do require uh, external intervention, uh, things like abuse, things like sexual misconduct. Paul's not calling us to cover things up. Um, he, he's, he's not saying... Cover certain things up that might be a little bit embarrassing uh, that, so that we don't look um, bad in front of the, the world. And he's not doing that. He's calling us to, to deal with our grievances properly in light of the gospel. And we're going to kind of unpack what that means. So there's, there might be serious, Lord willing, very few issues that, that need the intervention of local law. But the scope in this passage is he's dealing with the concern for intra-church family disputes that, that don't need to be elevated outside the community, family grievances that, that should be taken care of within the family. Here's the issue for Paul that we're going to see through this. Um, even through the first five chapters, Paul's, Paul's addressing their issues. He's dealing with their messiness, um, divisions among the body, arrogance that they're plagued by, judgmentalism that they shouldn't be um, executing. But he, he, he deals with all these issues by always appealing to their identity. So the reason you should stop acting this way, Paul says, is because of who you are. It's because of your identity. It's because of whose you are. 
And he opens the letter in this again in, in chapter one, verse two. He says, I'm writing to the church, those who are called to be saints, uh, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. From the very beginning, he's like, this is who you are. In chapter one, verse 26, he says, consider your, your calling, brothers. Another way to put that is consider your identity, your, your past and your present identity. At the end of chapter three, he says, you are Christ's. He says, don't boast in, in men, these divisions about who they're, who they're supposed to follow. He's like, don't do that because you are Christ. This is your identity. Paul's huge on remembering your identity. And we continue to see that through chapter six. There's really three things uh, on, the, on the screen here that, we're gonna, that we see Paul doing. Um, firstly, he's gonna urge them to consider their identity. And we see that in this instance, the, the problem is that they have a crisis of identity. And thirdly, we see the solution is, is the recovery of identity. So let's look at that first one, the, the consideration of identity. And in the first four verses of chapter six, and Paul quite pointedly asks a series of questions for the purpose of shifting their focus back to thinking about their identity. And, and here's, the, here's the really encouraging, incredible thing about what Paul's doing here, and is, is even though this church has some serious, serious issues, Paul still says that they are saints. Despite their, their messiness, this messiness that we saw last week, they are no less set apart by God. And Paul wants to remind them of that fact and to get them to understand themselves as God's family. And it's actually only from that perspective that when we understand our identity as God's holy set apart people that we'll actually see the absurdity of what's happening here, of how they are treating one another. Um, Paul's really urging them to consider three facets of their identity. Um, firstly, Paul reminds them uh, of their identity as, as God's saints, again, in verse 1. So he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So th- this is what the word church means. It's, it's the same root word in the Greek as called. So, so if you are a believer, if you're part of the church, it means you are, you are called out. You've been set apart to be, to be holy, to be God's special people. Um, it, it doesn't mean we're, we're perfect, right? Like we're, we're still very imperfect. We're still very morally imperfect here on earth. But, but we're, we're holy in a sense that God has objectively settled us to be set apart in this world, to, to be his saints, his people. And we see this from the very beginning. If you go back all the way to Genesis, when, when God calls Abraham and he tells Abraham that, that it's through Abraham's family that, that his descendants are going to be God's special people. They're called to be holy and set apart in this world. And the purpose for that, for calling that people, is so that they would reveal to the world who God is. So God's going to show the world who he is through a specific set of people who are different from the world. And, and, and so now even, even us, the church, God's called out holy people, we are to conduct ourselves in a way that, that shows who God is, that shows his grace and, and, the, and, and his kindness. We're, we're to be staggeringly different than the world around us. We conduct our family affairs in a way that shows that, that we're not shaped by the brokenness of the culture that we exist in. We are shaped by the gospel. We're shaped by the cross, Christ crucified on our behalf, our identity. 
Stephen Um, he's, he's, I, he's a commentator on this. He's brilliant on this text. I basically take all our points from him today. He says, our identity as God's saints means, means we are to display an alternative way of doing life. We show that God's justice system runs differently than the world's. And the church is the one place where it's supposed to be on display. Remember your identity as a saint. You've been set apart by God. Uh, Secondly, Paul uh, reminds us of our identity as God's future community. So verses 2 and 3. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if then the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Weird passage. Paul gives us this kind of mysterious glimpse into the future and the way that things will be at the end of time. And Paul not only wants to to remind us of our present identity as God's saints, he also wants us to keep in mind our shared identity as, as the future community of God who will be given rights and responsibilities to judge the world. So um, Paul always has an eschatological concern. That's just a big word that means a, a concern for the future. Paul's always, always looking towards the end and, and, and how that affects the way we live in the future, in the, in the present. And um, he says that when you understand your future role, that you'll be given to, to sit alongside the Lord as he sets the world right, as he balances the scales of justice once and for all. If you understand that, that, that future role, it will change the way you interact with one another in the present. And, and listen, I'll be the first person to put my hand up and say, I don't know what this means. I, I, I don't understand how that's, how that's going to work. And, and, and if, if you're sitting there thinking the same, that's okay. Be okay with that. Like, enjoy that, that there's things in the scripture that you don't understand. Like, one of, the, one of the best answers to how does that work is, I don't know. Like, our, our, be okay with the fact that our temporary kind of um, small earthly minds don't fully understand all of God. I don't understand how he works always in this earth. I definitely don't understand how the future is going to work. But I can tell you that this sounds important. It sounds like an awfully important role that he will give to his people. And I bet that once we are there and we do understand it, then we're going to take that role seriously. And Paul's saying that the, that immense future role that you'll be given should change the way that you deal with your grievances and disputes right in the present. And, and I want to point out this one thing, because if you were paying attention last week, you, you might be thinking, Paul seems to be contradicting himself a little bit here. Uh, because in the previous section, in chapter 5, um, he says, um, in verse 12, he says, for what have I to judge the outsider? So, so basically, in the previous section, he's like, don't be concerned with, with, with judging the holiness of those outside the church. Be concerned with the purity of those inside of it. Uh, the outside is, is, of no, is not of our concern. But here, he's, he's saying, is he saying the opposite? Well, that the church is to judge the world? Um, just be careful with that because... Um, Paul isn't contradicting himself because there's a big difference that lies in perspective. 
Um, so in the previous section, Paul's speaking of, of right now, the present judgments on people in this world that he says is none of our business. Um, here in this chapter, he's speaking of this future final judgment in, in which God's people will be in some way involved in, in this judgment of the world and I think probably kind of fallen angels. Even though we don't know exactly what that means, um, I think at the, very, at the very least, it means that, that justice in the church, the, the way that you and I deal with grievances with one another, should be far superior than the justice of the world. It, it should point to something greater. Because we have an identity as God's future community, it should change the way we deal with each other in the present. Uh, the third part of our identity that Paul uh, reminds us is our identity as God's present community. So in verse 4, he shifts from that eschatological to the, to the present again. Uh, and he says, so, or, or because of that identity that I just told you about, this, this future community, because of that, if you, have, if you have cases now, why do you lay those before uh, those who have no standing in the church? Paul's saying, you are God's people. You've been set apart. And to, to, be, to be his community, to be his family. You have this future role that's promised. Uh, you as a family ought to be able to handle your disputes as a family, inside the family. Why are you going outside of the church to deal with these things? Remember that, that Paul is always all about the gospel. It's, it's, he's always talking about the gospel. He's, he's always telling us to not forget the gospel. In chapter two, he's, he's basically said, I came to know nothing but the gospel with you guys. I came to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. It's, it's actually, he's saying, you are a gospel-shaped community of people. You, you, it's through the cross that God has graciously and freely justified you. The word justified means that, you, that God has set things right with you, that you're now right with God. And he's saying, in light of that, in light of God making things right with you graciously and lovingly, you should be able to turn to your family and treat them in the same way and make things right with them. If we just remember that, if we can just remember the gospel, it should be, it should be easier, shouldn't it? But it's not. We're awful at it. I mean, God has, has done everything for us. He sent his son to live this perfect life that we have no chance of ever living. He, he sent Jesus to come and, and die this death that we deserve to die. He's, he's, it's through the cross he's given us this incredible identity as sons and daughters of God, as his family, as co-heirs with Christ, Paul says in Galatians. His, his, his present community and his future community. What an incredible identity that we've been given Yet, we constantly try to shape our identity around the things of this world. Constantly trying to shape our identity around things that please us, things that comfort us now, things that excite us now. Paul talks about this in, in Romans 1.16. He says, we exchange this, this truth about God, this amazing truth about God for a lie and, and worshiped and served creation rather than the creator Stephen Um calls this a case of gospel amnesia. It's this gospel uh, forgetfulness. There's this crisis of identity that we experience. We forget the gospel. We forget our true identities in Christ, which in turn leads us to act like non-saints, like unrighteous rather than righteous. 
In verses 5 to 10, Paul addresses this crisis of identity, this, this gospel amnesia. In verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one, uh, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers outside of the church. To, the loss, to, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not, why not suffer wrong? Is that a Christmas jingle, Joe? <laughs> I'm going to tell her afterwards. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to start over in verse five, verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. He's talking about this crisis of identity. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Listen to this. He says, why not suffer wrong? Why, why not suffer, uh, why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers, so again, we, we don't know the exact details of the grievance here, but, but we're led to believe that it's not actually serious enough to be, that, that it should have ended up uh, in a court. And, and in verse 8, Paul says that this brother who's taking the other brother to court is, is wronging and defrauding his brother. This is a family member that should, a family matter that should be dealt with within the family, not in the public court. And the, and the public court it was different from our courts. Like, if you go to court, you're going to go in the city center, the courthouse, going up an elevator into a courtroom. And the, the, the court in Corinth was in the public market. It was in the city center. It'd be like you going to St. George's Market on a Saturday, and, and that's where the court is, in front of everybody. It was more of a, an entertainment event. It was a spectacle. And Paul says, you're brothers. You should be ashamed of yourselves. They've completely forgotten the gospel here. Essentially, they are there in the court, in the marketplace, displaying to the entire city of Corinth that they do not believe that the gospel has the resources to deal with their grievances. Their identity should be shaped by the gospel, but, but yet again, it's, it's being shaped by the way of Corinth, the, the culture of Corinth that says you need to reach the top. It's about getting honor and glory in society and position because that's where your identity lies. This is actually why so many, so many disputes ended up in court. The, the, the legal system in Corinth, wasn't, it was this spectacle. It wasn't really used so much to seek justice as it was to, to establish one, society, uh, one status in society, uh, to, to establish your honor and your position. The courts were often used to, by the fortunate to tread upon the less than fortunate. There's a quick way to move up the ranks, to, to kind of shame your brother and, and establish your supremacy over them. And that's why Paul is so shocked by what they're doing. It's, it's shameful that one brother in Christ is seeking to advance his position in society by means of treading upon another brother in Christ. It's, it's completely opposite from the way of the kingdom of God, isn't it? Paul's explained this through this. We're not, the, the kingdom of God is not about gaining honor. It's not about making your way to the top and being first. The kingdom of God is about being last, not first. It's about serving. It's about even suffering. It's about being reviled and slandered. 
Jesus talks about this. If we're, if we're obedient to him, then the, the world's going to end up hating you. Paul says this in, in, in chapter 4, that this faithfulness led to him being reviled and persecuted and slandered. His brother's completely forgotten his identity in the gospel. He's seeking to build his identity along Corinthian culture's lines, attempting really to attain from Corinth what only the gospel can uh, truly give him. He's experiencing an in, in individual identity crisis. Um, but read Paul. If you ever, you'll, ever, you'll notice that, that Paul rarely speaks to Christians or, or, or treats Christians purely on an individual basis. He, he's always concerned about the whole um, so, so he goes on to point out that, that, that not only has the, the brother forgotten his, his gospel identity, but the entire community has. So your family, if one member of family is in, is in sin, it says something about the, the, the entire family. Listen to last week's sermon about that. Uh, but Paul implies here that rather than living like a community of saints, the Corinthian church is living like the surrounding culture. They're going after, they're, val- they're evaluating the things that Corinth says that they should go after and value. They're, they're, they're treating one another in a way that, that Corinth treats each other, not the way uh, uh, Christians should treat one another. He said, you've been set apart. You, you should act like that. And he gives them this stark warning in verses 9 and 10. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Firstly, don't make the mistake of making certain things on this list weightier or more serious than the others. And if if we're honest, we do that, don't we? I can be a little bit greedy, but at least I'm not sexually immoral. I, I can be a little reviling, a little bit gossiping towards my brother or sister, but, but I'm no drunkard. The Bible doesn't know anything about a hierarchy uh, of sin. And, and listen, what I want you to, to notice about this list is it's not simply a list of actions or sins that people commit. It's their identities, People who have, these are the people who have placed their identities in the things of this world rather than in Christ. And, and, and even Paul's language, if you've been around for a little while, Paul's language of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, who does that remind you of? It reminds me of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we did a series in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus is, is speaking to his, his, his followers And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we learned that in that series that Jesus, that means he's not concerned with just your mere external obedience, your external righteousness. Jesus is is concerned with the deeper righteousness of the heart. And the, 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 the in, the, the, your inner person to be completely righteous, essentially your identity and I think Paul is, is echoing Jesus here by saying that if your identity is in anything other than Christ, whether that's your money or your job or your relationships or the things that you consume or your sexuality or sexual ethic, if it's in anything other than Christ, it's going to lead to personal and communal breakdown. 
Paul here, he's calling the Corinthians to live lives in step with the identity that they've been given in Christ. The core issue for the church in Corinth is this gospel amnesia, is this gospel forgetfulness. Stephen Um says, ultimately the Corinthians are conducting themselves as though their God-given identity is of no importance. They are forgetting the gospel. They are failing to be what they are. They are saints, but they are acting like non-saints. They are righteous, yet they are living as though they are unrighteous. Their result is that their community, which is meant to be a present glimpse of the future community that God intends for the world, has nothing to offer. They have no means of displaying the way the gospel shapes a community. It's, it's a devastating place for a church to be in. So how do we overcome a gospel identity crisis, a gospel amnesia, if you will? Where do we, where do we find the resources to be able to handle family disputes in the context of the church? Look at verse 11. Um, Paul ends the section by by urging them to recover their, their true gospel identities by remembering who they are. So in verse 11 he says, and such were some of you. So this is just following the, the last passage, the last section, this, this previous sentence that, that uh, is speaking about the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom. Paul says, that was you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. They had, they had forgotten the gospel, and, and the, the result was they were living not like saints, but like non-saints. They, they, they were living like the unrighteous culture of Corinth. So, so Paul, yet again, very, very blatantly reminds them, this is who you are. Notice he's not, he's not telling them um, they need to learn a new identity like, you guys have really messed things up. You're gonna to have to figure out a new way of doing things. No, our, our identity is, is not ours to form. Our identity is something that has been formed for us and given to us. This is, this is what God does for his people. He, he tells them who they are. That's, that's how grace works. And your, your salvation, for each and every one of you, it's not something that you orchestrate. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. It's, it's, your, salvation is, your salvation is something that, that Christ does for you. It's by grace you have been saved. It's, it's when you were dead that he brought you to life. He says your salvation, it's not, it's not your own doing. It's, it's a gift of God. He saves you when you were dead and gives you a new identity. Paul's telling them, he's saying, hey, unrighteous or, or sinners, it used to be your identity but let me explain again your new one, your true identity. It says you were washed. Notice the past tense of this. You were sanctified. You were justified in Christ Jesus. You were washed. That means the filth of your sin has been completely taken away. You were sanctified. You've been set apart. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You were justified your identity as sinner has been replaced with the identity as saint. That's who you are. And when we lapse in our identity, the answer is not to learn a new one, but to relearn who we already are. And listen, if you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. For the Christian, it's remembering 
the gospel and nothing else that should change the way we deal with our grievances and disputes. It, it's, it's remembering the gospel and nothing else that should change the way you handle your grievances and disputes. Could you see how, how different the gospel is than, than worldly courts? In a, in a worldly court of law, you are forced to focus on what you've done right and how you've been wronged. That's, that's the fundamental basis of how a court works. This is how I am right. I make my case. This is how I've been wronged. The gospel is the complete opposite. The, the gospel uh, shows, it reveals to us just how right God is, just how wrong we are, and just how much we need his grace and forgiveness. That's the beauty of the gospel. The, 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 on the cross is the only place in history where you have this, the, the, this, um, this combination of, of true justice that has to be met and grace comes together. And by being gospel-shaped people, we understand God's grace and we, we operate differently than the way the world operates. When it comes to trivial grievances, we're not focused on how much we've been wronged. Rather, we actively forgive and we promote reconciliation by accepting what we have done wrong. Look at verse 7. He says, um, why not suffer wrong? Why, why not rather be defrauded? Like for Paul, being wronged and defrauded, he's okay with that if it's an opportunity to display God's grace to the world. Totally fine with it. And we can, he can only do that, we can only do that by remembering the gospel, by remembering just how gracious and merciful God was to us when we did not deserve it. Like gospel memory, is, it's the only thing that makes sense of that, pass, of that part of verse seven. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Completely opposite in the world. This only makes sense if you ultimately have nothing to lose and if, if you ultimately have been given everything. If suffering wrong, it's not ultimately a threat for you. If being defrauded, it's not a loss for you. Suffering wrong and being defrauded are not ultimate grievances because Christ bore the ultimate grievance, our, our ultimate grievance on the cross in our place. Christ endured the wrong that we ought to have endured. He, he was defrauded of what was rightfully his in order to give us what we did not deserve. These things, they don't matter to us ultimately when our identity is grounded in Christ. We're gospel-shaped community who have been shown immeasurable grace and mercy when we did not deserve it. That's what fuels our forgiveness. Nothing else. The, the Romans 5, 8, this is the message of the gospel, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's incredible. Like while we in our nature were enemies of God, rebels rejecting him, and therefore deserving punishment, Jesus came to this earth and absorbed all of that. On the cross, he made peace on our behalf. And so if Christ absorbed all of our wronging, if he absorbed all of our attacks, if he absorbed all of our rejection, then when others do that to you, 
we can practice gospel memory. We, we remember what he did for us when we did not deserve it. And we can turn and do the same for others. We, we forgive. We absorb the wrong when, when it doesn't need to be absorbed. We practice, um, we, we gospel one another in this way. This is how, the gospel is not just like the ABCs of how to become a Christian. The gospel is everything. A to Z. It's, it's how you do your life by being informed of the gospel. And here's the beauty. Is this displays to the world God's amazing grace. The, 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 the outside world looks at God's saints, his chosen, set-apart people, his special community, and they see the way we handle our grievances and disputes. They, they see the way we forgive one another and show mercy and grace. And, and this will reveal to them the glory of God. This will, will show them what the gospel actually looks like. It's beautiful. But we can only do this when we remember our, our gospel identities as recipients of grace. And I wonder if you're sitting here thinking about a brother or sister who you have a grievance with. Maybe they've, they've wronged you in some way. Maybe you've wronged them in some way. Maybe a small way. That's the seed of a, of a larger problem. Maybe it's a big way. Can I entreat you as, as one of your elders to remember the gospel? Remember how gracious and merciful he's been to you when you did not deserve it. And that means we can go and we can forgive. We can ask for forgiveness if need be. You're saints. Act like it. I'm going to end with this, uh, this quote from our teacher, Stephen Um on the text. He says, The Christian community takes sin seriously, but handles it graciously. We do not overlook when wrong is done. We are called to be a community that reflects God's good, shalomic intentions for the world. This means that we never pass over wrongdoing in our midst, but we also do not crush people for, when they've, for the wrong they've done. The church is a court like no other. Justice is served when grace is extended. Repentant perpetrators are forgiven. Radically broken individuals are restored. We fight gospel forgetfulness and identity crisis by pressing one another into the gospel, by reminding of each other the gospel, what Christ has done for us. In every aspect of, of the life of our churches, we confront ourselves with the reality of who we are in Christ. We consider the identity that we have in Christ. Even the most drastic identity crisis cannot cause us to forget who we are. The Christian life is a process of remembering our true identity and striving to live in line with it by the way the resources provided in the gospel. You're saints, you've been forgiven, you've been shown mercy and grace and love when you didn't deserve it. Let's display that to the world. Let's stand and, and pray.